No Children, No Pets by Marion Holland, Part 6. Somebody was knocking on the door of the apartment, knocking so loudly that it could be heard over the roar and rattle of the storm, knocking so loudly that it woke Jane up. She sat up in bed and called, Mother! I hear it, replied Mother. She turned her flashlight on the doorway and called, Come in! The door opened, and a man stood there. He was dripping wet and exhausted looking, and he had one arm in a sling. He blinked at the flashlight and said, Hello, is this apartment occupied? What do you want? asked Mother sharply. Jane leaned forward to hear his reply, but what he said took her by surprise. Maybe this is your cat. It came in with me just now. Mother turned the flashlight onto the floor at his feet, and there was Victoria, her fur flat and wet and her green eyes gleaming in the light. Why, Victoria, said Mother. Oh, goodness, she's got a mouse in her mouth. Victoria streaked in right through the bedroom door and jumped up beside Jane. Eek, squeak, squealed Jane. It's a rat. No, it isn't. It's a kitten. And so it was. Victoria stood over it, purring proudly and licking the poor, drenched little thing. At first, Jane thought it was dead. Then it opened its tiny pink mouth and squeaked. Victoria promptly jumped off the bed and ran back to the door, making little anxious noises in her throat. Oh, mother, cried Jane, leaping out of bed. She's got some more someplace and she wants me to come with her. Oh, mother, let me have the flashlight. In this weather, exclaimed mother, it isn't safe. I'll go with her, offered the strange man unexpectedly. I can't get any wetter. Oh, dear, said Mother distractedly. Wait, Jane, put on my raincoat and button it up. I'll wear this one. Then they all three followed Victoria out the back door. The wind shrieked, the rain split the flashlight beam into dancing splinters, and the water was ankle deep on the back lawn. Victoria led them straight to the tool shed. The tool shed door leaned inward at a drunken angle, hanging by one hinge. Victoria disappeared into the blackness inside. I'll get them, shouted Jane. I know my way around in there. She took the flashlight from Mother and went in, and in the farthest corner beside the paint cans and the old sink lay two more kittens on a pile of greasy rags. Jane gathered them up while Victoria pranced anxiously around her ankles. Then they all fought their way back to the shelter of the building with Victoria running ahead. And now, said Mother to the man, as they stood dripping and breathless in number five apartment again, who are you? I am the manager here, he replied. At least I was. I suppose the new owner couldn't wait for me to come back and hired you. I am the new owner, said Mother. So you're Mr. Brundage. I must say a great many people have been wondering what had become of you. Didn't you get my letter? asked Mr. Brundage in a surprised voice. Mr. McGregor gave me your name and address while he was in the hospital. I wrote to you the day I left here explaining all about it. The letter would have arrived in Philadelphia after I reached here. It must be there still. I'm afraid I didn't leave any forwarding address as I only expected to be here a few days. But goodness, we don't have to stand here dripping while we talk. Take off that raincoat, Jane, and bring Victoria and the kittens into the kitchen. Mr. Brundage, you'll find your things still in the bedroom. Here, take a candle and don't worry about Betsy. Nothing wakes her up. Oh, dear, I do believe this is your raincoat I'm wearing. I just grabbed it out of the closet. Mother got some coffee started on the stove. Luckily, the gas hadn't been turned off with the electricity. 
Jane fixed a grocery carton in a dark corner for the kittens and fed Victoria a large meal under the sink. Then she sat very quietly beside the kittens, hugging her knees, while Mother and Mr. Brundage had sandwiches and coffee in the kitchen by candlelight. The sandwiches looked delicious, and Jane was famished, but she didn't dare mention it for fear Mother would remember to send her back to bed. Wouldn't the boys be furious if they knew what they were sleeping through? New kittens and the mysterious missing Mr. Brundage. Not that he was missing anymore, and he didn't look especially mysterious either now that he had changed into dry clothes. Just rather tired and sad, Jane thought. Anyway, she was glad that he had come back in the middle of a hurricane so that Mrs. Pennypacker couldn't pounce right on him and start in about her poor dear mother's ruby. Mother hadn't mentioned Mrs. Pennypacker's ruby clip. She had only asked him how he happened to go to work for great-great-uncle John. It was just luck that I walked in looking for a job at the very time he got too sick to take care of the place himself, explained Mr. Brundage. I'm not really a handyman. I'm a machinist, but I haven't been in very good health lately, in and out of hospital for a couple of years, and that can really eat up your savings. Finally, the doctor said I had to get some other kind of work, something in a warmer climate that would keep me outdoors a good deal. Actually, I think McGregor took me on because I offered to work for next to nothing in return for... Mr. Brundage broke off and took another sip of coffee. I wish you had gotten my letter, he said slowly. It explained everything much better than I can do now, talking. I suppose you know that your uncle wasn't particularly fond of children? I don't believe he was, replied Mother, looking mystified. But... He was fond of saving money wherever he could, went on Mr. Brundage with a little smile. So he hired me even though it meant having a child in the building. A child? asked Mother, looking around as though Mr. Brundage might have left a baby in the corner. Yes, his mother died when he was little, and it's hard for a man alone to raise a kid the right way. Factory towns where I could find the best-paying jobs were pretty tough places and no good for a boy running wild all day. Then I was in the hospital not earning anything, so I had to, well, to put him into a sort of public institution, so I haven't even seen much of him for a couple of years. But this arrangement seemed ideal. I would be working right where I lived, and I could have him with me. And I really looked this town over and decided it would be a nice little place for a boy to grow up in. I see, said Mother sympathetically. So you went up north to get him? Not exactly. I couldn't get him yet because I hadn't made any arrangements with you, but I had to go just the same because he ran away from some people he was staying with. I saw them and I can't say I blame him, but he had been missing nearly a week before I was notified. Then it took me a while to pick up his tracks. He'd been hitchhiking and heading south, so I knew he was headed right here. He had this address, you see, because I'd been writing to him. This didn't help either. Mr. Brundage touched the sling on his arm. My money was running low, so I picked up a ride on a truck and it overturned in South Carolina, and I had to stop and get my arm set. I came on by train as soon as I could, and it took me an hour to get across town. Had to argue with policemen and storm wardens on every corner. By this time, Jane was just about to burst with excitement, and Mother sounded pretty excited, too, as she asked, "'What's your son's name?' "'Michael.' "'Has he been here asking for me?' said Mr. Brundage eagerly. "'Well, there's been a boy around named Mike, but he hasn't said anything about you. 
Mr. Brundage's face fell. It must be some other boy. If Mike came all the way to Florida to find me, why, the first thing he'd do would be to ask for me right here. I bet I know why he didn't, Jane burst out. I thought you were in bed, said Mother. Do you know what time it is? Why didn't he? asked Mr. Brundage. Well, he ran away from some mean people on a truck farm, and maybe twelve or thirteen, and he has freckles, and we like him a lot, began Jane all in one breath. That must be Mike, sighed Mr. Brundage. But why didn't he say who he was and ask for me? I think maybe. Well, the very minute he got here, everybody was saying you had gone away and nobody knew where. And then Mrs. Pennypacker made a big noise about her ruby clip being missing and said you weren't coming back. Anyway, even if Mike didn't think, Jane stopped in confusion. That I stole it, finished Mr. Brundage. Oh, I'm sure he never thought that. But the thing is, he didn't know what to think, explained Jane. He probably knew all the time you'd gone to look for him and you'd be back. But he thought that if he said who he was, people would ask where he came from, and then they'd ship him right back there to that awful place. So I guess he just decided to hang around till you got back. Only it took you a lot longer than he thought it would. Poor kid, said Mr. Brundage. Well, it's something to know you've seen him and he isn't sick or anything. As soon as this weather lets up a bit, I'll go look for him. Jane looked at Mother, and Mother looked at Jane. Then Mother said cautiously, Don't be too disappointed if it isn't the right boy. But if it is, he's in the apartment across the hall asleep. What? Mr. Brundage leaped to his feet. Which apartment? Mother took the flashlight and led the way. Both boys, fully dressed, were sprawled on great-great-uncle John's bed. Mike was lying on his back with one arm across Don's chest. Mother played the flash on his face, and he mumbled something in his sleep and rolled over. Yes, this is Mike, whispered Mr. Brundage, leaning over the bed. Mother touched him on the shoulder and beckoned him out of the room. Let him sleep, she said. He's had a hard day. Back in number five, Mr. Brundage looked like a different person. He stood up straighter, and Jane could see why some of the tenants had described him as quite a young man. Why? You've taken him in without knowing who he was or anything about him, he said to Mother. I can't even begin to thank you for it, but I'll be glad to work here for nothing if I can keep the job in the apartment. I'm sure I could find a part-time job somewhere else that would pay for our food. It's too late to talk business tonight, said Mother, smiling. The sofa over in number six is made up to sleep on, so why don't you just turn in over there? That way I'm sure you'll see Mike the minute he wakes up in the morning. Thank you, said Mr. Brundage, and good night. Good night, said Mother. Good night, said Jane. For goodness sake, are you still up, young lady, exclaimed Mother. You march right in there to bed. Jane lay awake until Mother blew the candle out again. Mother, she called softly, you will let him stay and keep Mike here, won't you? I don't know, replied Mother in a troubled voice. When he thinks it over, he may not want to stay. There's still that miserable ruby clip to be accounted for. Oh, but, Mother, you don't think he took it, or Mike either. No, but it doesn't matter what I think. If it doesn't turn up, you know what Mrs. Pennypacker will think and what she will say, and she will go right on saying it. Of course, she won't be able to prove that he took it, but how can he prove that he didn't? It's likely to be very unpleasant. Now go to sleep. 
Jane closed her eyes obediently, but something was keeping her awake, something more than excitement, and it took her a while to figure out what it was. It was the silence. The center of the hurricane must be passing over. Jane's ears were so used to the tremendous smother of noise outside that the silence seemed to echo in her head. She twisted and turned, trying to get comfortable, weighted down by the stillness. It was so still that she could hear the drip, of water from the leaves right through the closed windows. It was so still that she could hear the tiny squeak of a new kitten all the way from the kitchen and Victoria's reassuring prowl. Then with a roar that rattled all the windows, the second half of the hurricane hit. The wind bellowed, the rain battered against the building, and Jane rolled over and went to sleep. When Jane woke up in the morning, for one bewildered moment, she couldn't think where she was and why she had all her clothes on. Someone had opened the bedroom window. The sun was simply blazing outside, and the sky was a bright, dazzling blue, and there was just enough breeze to flick the edge of the window curtain. Betsy's side of the bed was empty, and there was a cheerful confusion of voices in the kitchen. Jane rubbed her eyes, straightened her rumpled shirt, and walked into the kitchen barefoot. Betsy was sitting on the floor beside the kitten box, eating a piece of buttered toast and beaming at the kittens as proudly as though she had invented them herself. Everybody else was crowded in at the little kitchen table. Mike was sitting next to his father, and he looked like a brand-new Mike. The Mike Jane knew had a wary, watchful look on his face and hardly ever said anything except an answer to a question. This Mike wore a big, white grin that stayed on even while he chewed, even while he talked, and he was talking steadily. The toughest thing, he was saying cheerfully, was keeping away from the place enough for the time so that you all wouldn't start wondering, doesn't he have any place to live? Man, I sure walked all over this town and up and down the beach for miles just staying out of sight, and I never got enough sleep because I was scared to turn in till all the lights in the place went out, and I had to get up awful early so nobody would come out and catch me in the tool shed. And the reason I took that can of beans was because you said they were Mr. Brundage's beans. And I thought, if I can't eat my own father's beans, what can I eat? His father interrupted him. I hope the barber shop is open today, he said, looking at Mike's hair. Mike brushed the hair back out of his eyes and exposed a dazzling white forehead above his tanned and freckled face. Don whistled. Oh, brother, are you ever going to get a fierce sunburn after you have a haircut? The back of your neck, too. The detective business must be looking up, observed Jane, reaching for a piece of toast. I see you've found Mr. Brundage already. The trouble with the detecting business, growled Don, is that nobody tells anybody the truth. Everything I told you was the truth, replied Mike am amiably. Huh? It sure wasn't the whole truth. Look, if everybody went around telling the whole truth the whole time, what would there be for the detectives to detect? You better get busy and detect Mrs. Pennypacker's ruby clip or she'll go on saying that Dad took it. Let her find it herself if she wants it so bad, grunted Don. I'm out of the detecting business as of right now. After breakfast, they left the dirty dishes right on the table. Betsy couldn't tear herself away from the kitten box, but everybody else went out the back door to look around. Nothing was the same after the storm. All along the street, the light poles leaned over at different angles, trailing broken wires, 
but already there were men with trucks repairing the damage. Half a dozen palms were down, flat on the ground, with their roots in the air. For such tall trees, the roots were ridiculously small. They looked like old kitchen mops. A huge branch had snapped off the old live oak and lay sprawled half across the lawn, along with a section of somebody's picket fence. A sodden straw hat, part of an awning with a twisted frame, and about two-thirds of a billboard with the left side of a beautiful lady and the words, Drink Cook, painted on it. And all over everything was a litter of coconut fronds, twigs, leaves, and petals. The trees and bushes were just clumps of naked stems and branches whipped bare by the wind. Oh dear, look at Betsy's poor biscuit bush, cried Jane. All her precious junk. Betsy's bedraggled collection was plastered up against the base of the building, embedded in a drift of sand and rubbish. Jane crawled under the bare bushes on her hands and knees and began rescuing what she could. Don went off with Mike and Mr. Brundage to get tools and unbar the front door. Jane saw them carrying the ramp around the court, the building in case Mr. Blessing wanted to come out and view the damage, too. Other tenants were already coming out the back door and scattering around the grounds, looking happily up at the clear sky and reminiscing about past hurricanes with the air of experts. "'Absolutely nothing compared to the 47 blow,' Miss Smith was saying." Three feet of water in the middle of town, and the yacht basin overflowed, and there were yachts all over the A&P parking lot. I remember a typhoon once in the China Sea, said Mrs. Hand in her gentle voice. Little junks piled up all along the beach, and the poor fishermen and their families. Those boats were their homes, and their livelihood both. Ah, but you should have been here for the big blow of twenty-six, exclaimed Mrs. Broom. There wasn't a single house undamaged in town, and I don't know how many just blew away and were never seen again. We had just moved here from Chicago, and my husband and I were sitting at a window on the lee side of the house, watching things blow by, and my husband said, There goes another roof. Then we looked up, and it was on our own roof. Jane crawled along the side of the building, picking up Betsy's shells and empty perfume bottles and tin badges, the kind you find in cereal boxes, and the little plastic toys that sometimes come out of a chewing gum machine when you put a penny in. What a magpie the child was. And a piece of shiny ten-cent store jewelry. Jane picked up the glittering thing and brushed it off on her shirt front. Splinters of bluish light sparkled from the white stones around the edge, and the red stone in the middle glowed warmly without sparkling. Jane didn't even have to turn it over and make sure that there was a gold spring clip on the back, it didn't matter that she had never seen a real ruby in her whole life. This thing looked so exactly the way she had always known a ruby would look. Jane sat back on her heels. Now where in the world had Betsy picked it up? Could Mrs. Pennypacker have dropped it outdoors somewhere and Betsy with her sharp eyes? Surely she had never taken it from Mrs. Pennypacker's apartment. Then Jane had a sudden vision of Mrs. Pennypacker in the doorway with Betsy and Betsy saying, I had to get my shoes. Jane's heart sank. Betsy would never, never take anything out of a box or off a table. Jane was certain of that, but any shiny object on the floor was simply treasure trove to her. And now there was the unpleasant business of returning this thing to Mrs. Pennypacker, who would certainly call poor little Betsy a thief or worse. Well, Mother would know what to do. 
Jane put the ruby clip in the pocket of her shorts and backed out from under the bushes. She found Mother near the front door, standing beside Mr. Blessing's wheelchair and deep in conversation with Mrs. Blessing. Jane hung around, waiting for a chance to speak to her alone. Mr. Brundage was examining the ramp while Mike and Doug and Don proudly showed him now they had fixed it to fit over the steps. Miss Giddings came out the door with Chico on an improvised leash, made of a belt and a ribbon tied together. She walked down the steps beside the ramp, looked up at the sky, and exclaimed, "'What a glorious morning! Simply glorious! It just goes to show!' Next came Mrs. Pennypacker looking for Mother. She interrupted Mother's conversation with Mrs. Blessing. "'Something must be done about the roof. Immediately! It leaked bucketfuls all night!' Suddenly she caught sight of Chico. Eh! she screeched. "'What's that?' Chico was not accustomed to being screeched at. He darted out the full length of his leash and made a quick grab for the flounce on the bottom of Mrs. Pennypacker's skirt, and it ripped loose with a loud tearing noise. Miss Giddings scolded and pulled on the leash. Chico chattered and pulled on the flounce, and just as the whole thing came off in Chico's little hands, Betsy burst out the front door, shouting at the top of her lungs. "'Guess what, everybody? Kittens! And all brand new!' She slid down the ramp, bumped into Mrs. Pennypacker at the bottom, and dashed off around the building, still yelling, Kittens! Three kittens! Mrs. Pennypacker, ignoring Miss Giddings' apologies, shouted at Mother, This place is no better than a madhouse. I am giving you my notice. I am leaving, but you haven't heard the last of me. What about my poor dear mothers? She stopped short. She pointed a quivering finger at Mr. Brundage, who was standing quietly by with a hammer in his hand. There he is, she gasped. There's the man who stole it. Do something. Don't let him get away. Call the police. Jane forgot that she was going to have a quiet talk with Mother. She just stepped up to Mrs. Pennypacker and waved the ruby clip right under her nose. Mrs. Pennypacker snatched it from her and examined it suspiciously. Ha! Huh, she snorted. So he decided to bring it back, and she marched into the building without a backward glance. He didn't take it, Jane called after her, but the screen door slammed on the words, drowning them out. Don and Mike pounced on her with questions, but it was to Mother that Jane explained miserably. The biscuit bush, in with all the rest of Betsy's junk. I suppose it's been there all this time. Oh, Mother, you know she didn't have any idea. And Mrs. Pennypacker still thinks Dad took it? exclaimed Mike. The awful old stinker, suggested Don helpfully. I'll tell her where we found it before she goes, said Mother. No, don't, said Mr. Brundage firmly. You can't tell a person like that anything. If she's really going, just let her go. And go she did the very next morning, which was just as soon as she could get a truck to come and take her things away. But even Mrs. Pennypacker's departure seemed unimportant compared to Mother's big news. Mother had decided not to sell the building but to keep it and to stay here and live in it. Jane was wild with excitement. She hugged Mother and she hugged Betsy, and she would have hugged Don and Mike too, except that she knew they wouldn't speak to her for a week if she did. She hardly heard Mother's explanation about how none of the people who were interested in buying the property intended to keep the building as it was. They all planned to remodel it or tear it down and build something else. And the first thing they all planned to do was to tell the tenants to leave. 
I've been hoping to see some way to keep the place for some time, Mother explained, but nearly all the rent money for months and months will have to go for taxes, and after that there are some really expensive repairs that must be made if the place isn't to tumble down around our ears. I just couldn't see what we would do for living expenses if I gave up my job, but with my new job at the Palm Glade Library... What about the Palm Glade Library? asked Jane. For goodness sake, Jane, quit leaping around the room and listen. Mrs. Blessing knows all about the library. She was a trustee for years, and when she found out the other day that I was a librarian, she seemed quite excited, although I couldn't imagine why. So now the trustees have offered me the librarian's job. Of course, I haven't even seen the place yet. Oh, it's darling, exclaimed Jane. You'll just love it. But it's closed for the summer now. No, it's closed because the librarian got married and moved away. So we'll just move into Mrs. Pennypacker's apartment. It's a really big one with two enormous bedrooms. I can't imagine why she needed the biggest one in the building. Because she was the biggest one in the building, Don whispered to Mike, but he made sure Mother couldn't hear him. And Mike and his father will live in number five, of course. And a teacher friend of Miss Smith's is just waiting to rent number six. Oh, and Mrs. Broom has told me about a fine nursery school near here, so Jane won't have to spend all her time babysitting. And the library's open only three days a week, so I won't have to spend all my time. Mother paused for breath. There's so much to do, she exclaimed. We must send for our things and get really settled here before school starts. And you will have to get registered for school in a few days, and Mike too. Miss Smith has offered to go with you and show you what to do. Heavens, I hardly know what to do first. I know what to do first, said Jane suddenly. In all the time we've been here, I don't believe you've been to the ocean even once. That's right, admitted Mother. I haven't. Then I think we should all get our bathing suits and go swimming. All in favor say aye. Aye, shouted Don and Mike. Aye, shouted Betsy. What does aye mean? All right, said Mother, laughing, just this once to celebrate. But there's something I must attend to first. Get me a hammer and a screwdriver, will you? If it's something to repair, I'll do it, said Mr. Brundage. No, this is something I have been meaning to do for a long time, and I want to do it myself. Mother carried the tools out to the front door. Then, while Mr. Brundage and Jane and Don and Mike and Betsy and Victoria all stood and watched, Mother removed the sign that said, no children, no pets, and handed them to Mr. Brundage. Just throw these in the trash, will you, she asked. And now we'll all go swimming. <laughs>